Welcome to the Artelligence Podcast. I'm Marion Manneker, and we're going to explore the mysteries of the global art market. Twenty years, Jamie Niven was a key figure in Sotheby's business development team. He was also a frequent auctioneer for Sotheby's and for many charity events. In this conversation, we talk about handling clients, the loneliness of being an auctioneer, and Niven's new role at Athena Art Finance. So several months ago, I was approached by uh, Andrea Danese, who is the CEO of this company, and uh, Mr. Sarkozy, who is the director of the company. Would I be interested in going on the board and being an outside director, a true outside director, in the sense that I, I would be not part of the Carlyle Group or French Bank or the Swiss Bank that owns these other companies? And I thought it was, it was an intriguing opportunity to get involved with an entity which offers a choice. Uh, I love choices, so in a sense, what appealed to me about Athena is that they were going about lending money in a non-recourse way. All the other lending opportunities I've seen in those years at Sotheby's where people were borrowing money, either from Sotheby's or Christie's or from the banks, particularly the Bank of America, it was all recourse financing. So it sounded great until you looked at page 84, paragraph three, Roman numeral two, they said, oh, by the way, we want your signature. Or in the case of Sotheby's and Christie's, they wanted the right to sell that object over a period of three years after the loan was paid. So, and it was recourse, don't forget. So I thought this was, a, this was an opportunity for people to realize that out there in the world is a choice. You don't have to borrow money uh, at recourse financing. You can borrow non-recourse financing from Athena, and that's what appealed to me. So, in a sense that I thought and they thought that maybe I could be helpful. I have uh, long been uh, an inhabitant of New York City. This is my 50th year of living here. And I thought that perhaps I could be helpful to them to introduce them to people that they don't know that might be of interest to us as clients. And so that's why I, I chose to do this. And the fact is that I really enjoyed meeting Andrea. I obviously I did my own research on Andrea, not that he'd be happy about that, but I did. And the checks were all great for him. And of course, I've heard of Pic Day and Carlisle, needless to say, over many years. So I thought it'd be a good opportunity to see if I could help them. And what about your former clients? You mm -hmm. spent 20 years right. uh, at Sotheby's on the client side yeah. uh, with a very broad range of people you worked with. Yes. Uh, and do you think that this kind of financing coming into the market will change the way people buy? Good question. I, I have a feeling, and, and, a, and I don't know that, okay? My gut tells me yes. The, the issue of the 90 clients that I had, some are institutions and probably would not be interested in borrowing money, or in some cases, like museums, probably can't. Um, would they be interested in, in leveraging their assets. Of course, people always are interested in leveraging their assets. How they do it is another issue. Um, will it help buyers? I think that's your question that I meandered around to answer. I don't know the answer to that, but I think it should. After all, if you talk to a dealer, which I do now, um, and you've got a client that wants to buy a $20 million painting, I'm making it up here, obviously, and they can secure financing of $10 million, but they don't need $10 million, they need five. They got five and they want to borrow another five um, to bring them up to a point where they can finance this you know, on a different basis. So they, 
have $10 million and they need another five, depending on the percentages. I think they would be interested in knowing there's an entity out there that will help them close the transaction. I don't think the dealers are going to be necessarily lending them the money to do the transaction. I think that's where Athena can play a role in helping close the transaction. And the math is, is fuzzy for this because in a sense that you are coming in with the last bit. So the, the buyer has to come up with the bulk of the money. We would only lend money against 50% maximum the value of the painting. So in a sense, at the end of the day, if it's a $20 million transaction, he's got to come up with 15. And there, there we could be very helpful with the five. Excellent. That, and that's what I see as an opportunity for this newly started company. And it's going to take us time to get out there and talk to all the dealers and all the art advisors and, and the banks and so forth and so on. And that's what we all are spending our life doing here. But it, was it your experience that you had clients who, um, if they could have financed the extra five, would have gone a little bit further in an auction, uh, who would have chased after mm -hmm. that, that big Basquiat that they thought maybe you know, they dropped out earlier? Will it change those dynamics? I think that people, if they, were, if they were careful how they bought, had a specific dollar amount they were prepared to go to. Now, let's be frank. Almost everyone has exceeded that at some point or another. Some greatly, some not. Uh, I don't know whether it would have helped them. I see, I think that it would have helped them get to the dollar amount that they were comfortable at bidding. That they went higher had really nothing to do if they wanted to borrow the money from here, as an example, because here you're going to be pretty structured as to what you can lend. So I think probably. As time goes on, it'll help people establish the maximum amount of money they want to bid. I think that's where it could be helpful. Uh, above and beyond that, if they want to go higher, we can't help them do that because we've already established how much we're going to lend. And you know, you got to be very cautious in this world. So I think it'll help people get in the game and give them that feeling of liqu extra liquidity uh, to play. I do. I'm interested in in the sort of bookends of your career in the sense that the art market in 2014, 2015, well, 2014 because that was sort of the peak of this last yes. cycle, um, seems extremely different from the art market of the late 90s, which was just waking up after a fairly long period. I guess you must have first started right around the time of the GAN sales. 96, that's correct. Yeah. Uh, which was the sort of starting gun uh, yep. that, that people would pay. And then we had the Orange Maryland in 98, yep. and then sort of things really took off uh, in 2002, 2003. Did you feel like you saw different types of people, clients, in those years? Has the, the client base changed, I guess, is my question. Well, I think that it, it, clearly over a period of those many years, you had a change in people with money. Uh, you saw a rise in Russian buyers. You saw a, a, a big rise in Russian buyers, big rise in Chinese buyers. Um, but you had a pretty strong American buyer group. I mean, over the over those many years, Americans were important buyers. Um, and they remain so. I think you saw a decline in European buyers would be my instinct. Um, but there's always, there's always a new group. There's always a new group that makes money. Somewhere in the world, someone or some group has made money 
okay, even though others may not have done so well. And it seems to me that great art attracts that money. You go back in time, go back 500 years, whatever you want to go back to, and, and you'll see that the very wealthy uh, had in-house artists, for Lord's sakes, uh, and they always were buyers of art. And the great English success stories of traveling all over the world, bringing back works of art and whatever, and, you know, Catherine the Great buying all the art in Europe. I mean, you just go back in time. People with money, once they've taken care of what their obligations are vis-a-vis -vis their family and whatever, tend to want to buy works of art. And I think you're seeing that today. There'll be, there'll be another shift today. You watch. It'll come from the Silicon Valley. You watch. There'll be collectors out there. There'll be people who really start to buy art. And, and, and that's another group. And you'll see it again. There'll be, a, there'll be another round of Brazilian buyers, you know, five, six years from now. And I just think that, yes, of course the clientele changes, but it's the, it's the great paintings that come on the market that define, define the market in many respects. And I'm curious about the, the life cycle of a client. Does yeah. someone come uh, buy for three to five years and either feel like they've bought what they, they wanted, needed, and trail off, or do they stick with it you know, for a long period or come back episodically? I've always believed that, and this is a general statement, so obviously there's an exception, but that people, when they build collections, they spend a, a period of time, call it five years, and they spend an enormous amount of money in those five years. Ten, ten years later, when you go to them with an object that would fit well with their collection, they wouldn't think about spending that kind of money because they're used to spending this kind of money over here on the left. And so I think that, that key collectors, vast majority, have a finite moment in time when they build a collection. And after that, they tend to not jump at the next deal. Um, there are always exceptions. There are people that I've known over many years, one in particular who is now over 100, has never stopped buying and never bought anything for an investment purpose, just continued to buy great things. Um, but most of the time, you, you, you run up against that price problem is that people are used to spending this amount of money over here and for them to reach to this new amount of money for the same kind of works of art that they have, it's a problem. It's a problem. And that's, that's why you have changing faces in the, in the art world. Is it just that feeling of when they were, you know, they had the passion for it, they, yeah. they got the anchored in certain prices, yeah. and now everything seems like, well, it's, you know, it's like real estate. If the, if the apartment, mm -hmm. uh, the next up apartment has gone up significantly, it's just not worth it, and you're mm -hmm. happy where, where you are. It's I think so. I think it has a lot to do with it, actually. I mean, it's, it, it makes sense, actually, when you get right down to it. Um, I mean, look, you've had an enormous run-up in prices in the contemporary art world. Really enormous. And so let's say you were lucky enough to have been a buyer at the, let's say in the year 2000, I'm making it up, but 2000. Big problem in 2000. You know, the over-the-counter market, as I call it, and still do, NASDAQ falling on its ass. You had a real decline in people's net worth. And if you, had, if, you were, if you were liquid then, you could have bought a lot of contemporary works of art for what I would describe as rather modest prices. Now, 
Today, that buyer probably is not terribly interested in paying, you know, 15 or 20 times what he paid for those works. He might more likely be a seller. But there are collectors in other categories, American art, say, mm -hmm. who today might, uh, you know, see bargains compared to yeah. what they were in the heyday of when they were getting in there. I think you're right. I think the American paintings market is the one that I would tell you if I wanted to take advantage of a decline or a softening, if you will, in the real market, I would say it's American paintings. I never could understand something about American paintings. I said, how could you not want to buy these beautifully painted works of art for one-third or one-fifth of the same comparable, comparable work of art painted by a French Impressionist, i.e. a C Impressionist painting, as opposed to an A American Impressionist work of art. I'm a big fan of American paintings. I, I probably will go to my grave being a fan of American paintings. But I do think that it's an opportunity today as, as a softening of that, of that market. I agree with you. That seems to be one of the great mysteries, the art, yeah. art market, is there's a lot of great painting that's fallen out of favor mm -hmm. across many different markets. Oh, yeah. But, you know, the regional, the, there's yeah. stuff up in New Hampshire, the things yeah. out in Philadelphia. I mean, there's, yeah. there's a lot of painting that so, you would think people would be attracted to. Larry Rivers and Andy Warhol in 1964 were equivalent. Um, they were the, the hot topicos. They were the ones that you wanted to buy for $100 of work. I remember they used to exhibit those in the Chelsea Hotel in those days. I used to stay in the Chelsea Hotel in those days. And Larry Rivers was considered as great an artist as Andy Warhol, but somewhere along the line he fell out of favor, and obviously Andy Warhol did not. How is it you got into this in the late 90s? Is it through the museum boards that you were no, involved in? No, I, I was. I've had four different careers and I'm probably not looking for a fifth at age 70, but they were very distinctive different careers. One was investment banking, one was spaghetti sauce, one was oil and gas, and then in 1996, I was offered a job at Sotheby's, and I took it because the oil company that I had been chairman of was sold, and I was getting divorced, and I was 50. All those things are not great, okay? Altogether, it's a fucking nightmare. But I was, asked to come on board there and become head of business development because they felt that I could really help them develop clients. And so I went in on the, if, if you will, on the client business side, not on the expert side. And that's, I became an auctioneer because I wanted to try and be an auctioneer. It had nothing to do with the job. It never is. You do, if, auction, if auctioning is two-tenths of one percent of your time, that would be a lot. But I did become an auctioneer at Sotheby's, and I did a lot of sales, and I liked it. But that was just a personal thing that I wanted to try. Business development uh, in that era would have been more on the um, uh, sales side, on getting people to consign work. Correct. Because the the buyer market was more dealers than Correct. you know the the thing that's happened in the twenty years you were there mm -hmm. is this massive influx of. Um, for lack of a better term, retail buyers uh, uh, using the auction house as uh, a place to learn and get access to works that they might not uh, right. uh, otherwise. I was involved with very much on the buy side. Uh, excuse me, I should say I was very much involved on the consignment side, let's put it that way. It's not to say I didn't help once everything was in find buyers for those works. Of course I did. I did that a lot. Mm -hmm. uh, and I was on the phone for every sale for all those years. Um, but 
my job was essentially to reach out to corporations, reach out to museums, reach out to individuals I knew, reach out to trust and estate attorneys and do all that work of trying to figure out how we could be competitive and bring in works of art that hopefully will be sold at auction or privately as the case may be. But today people are likely to be more transactional than they were in the late 90s. In the late 90s you were looking for uh, a family uh, you know, in one of the three Ds to make a choice about uh, selling their work. Today, mm -hmm. the, I'm, I'm assuming on that, at least on the, the selling side, mm -hmm. there's m more investment banking to do, more of a way of going to someone and saying, you know, here's an opportunity for yeah. you. I think what you're really saying is, is, has art become a big time collecting category as opposed to 20 years ago where there was more, um, sorry, it's been time investment today versus a collecting atmosphere at, at the turn of the century. Uh, I suspect that the financial buildup, if you will, of value is in the late 1900s and going into, into, into the year 2000, 2001 probably started to galvanize people's thoughts that this is, a, this is an asset class. I think that's where you come out. I think today it's much more an asset class than it was building collections. I think there's no question about it. Um, I, I find that, okay, it's change. Um, it's just change, let's say, it, let's put it that way. It's different now. Uh, you mentioned uh, just a minute ago being on the phone. Uh, yeah. does, that, does that change? somewhat of the thinking in that moment, you know, often that very brief moment mm. where decisions are made about how much to spend, whether to go further, mm. whether to uh, take a pass? In my case, no, because I was on the phone with pretty much one or two individuals that really knew what they were doing. So no, um, all I was doing was relating to them the action in the room, whether there was a bid or not, and that's clear. You could, you could say, and he's not got a bid yet, now he's got a bid. People on the phone will ask, uh, where is the bid? Is it with the auctioneer? Is it on the phone or is it in the room? And you'll tell them it's in the room, whatever. You can't say who, um, although they often knew. Um, and no, I don't think they were, uh, no, I think they just needed the information, period. It wasn't a function of, uh, they never felt they were at a disadvantage being on the phone because quite frankly, if that was the case, they wouldn't have done it. These are real big buyers, you know, professional. Well, these days you can see what's going on in the room and be on the phone at the same time. Correct. Someone has told you tricks. <laughs> I, I, I know several people who see, seem to uh, want to migrate to then uh, pushing a button instead of being on the phone, but I, I think just miss having a, a person on the other end well, uh, you to have, chat it through. You have all kinds of crazy things that go on, you know, and if you're, if you're really, if you're someone that goes to a lot of auctions, you can pick it up pretty quickly. I mean, I know, I can tell you now, if I went to look, I would know if the auctioneer has a bid or not. That's pretty easy. People on the phone may have a harder time knowing that. I can tell you if someone in the room is bidding with his eyes and he's holding a phone to his face, but he's not talking to anyone. He's looking at someone up on the, on the desk. That happens a lot. Uh, people try and, and cover, but it's hard, you know. You, there are too many experienced people in there. They know. They can tell what's going on in there. And, and how often do you think at this stage, since the, the, the auction room has gotten larger in the yeah. sense that it's more visible, yeah. people can participate from home, whether they're on, yeah. they're on the phone or not, yeah. how, how much is uh, uh, 
things getting carried away, or is everyone sort of get to where they wanted to be and it's sort of a, a, an efficiently functioning market? Hmm. I don't know the answer to that. I, I, I have a sense always that, that people don't get, get carried away anymore. I, I think that people are pretty strict with themselves about what they're prepared to spend. Yes, it becomes extraordinary when you have $170 million goes to buy a, a Medigliani. I think that's pretty extraordinary. And that's usually the case where you have two people that are bidding it up at the end, by a lot. Um, I, I think that people are pretty disciplined. When they drop out at 15 million, because 15 is the number, or they drop out at 16, that's it. It's the other two that go on that you always wonder where the if there is a limit in some people's minds, yeah. and, you know. I, I, this is just my observation, but it feels like in the last few years we've seen many more chopped bids or uh, all sorts of moves uh, trying to buy at any cost but without spending any more than one has to. Mm -hmm. It seems like the game has got, gotten into no. uh, exhausting the other bidder, no. especially when it comes down to two, uh, yeah. uh, in a way that it didn't really used to be. I think the auctioneer makes a mistake in these situations. I, I, I never allowed a cut bid when I did auctions, never. And people used to laugh and try and do it because they were just laughing knowing I wouldn't do it. But I think that when you get down to a $10 million painting and the auctioneer is going up in increments of $100,000, that's absolutely nuts. He shouldn't take it. He should take the next bid's $10,250,000. Someone says 100000 He shouldn't take it. He shouldn't take the bid. Now the seller may be upset but I think the seller is better served that you can up the increments. Because to get to 11 million, it only takes four bids as opposed to 10. People run out of, out of, they get exhausted or they get restless or, I just think you should stick to your guns. I think you should, your increments should be based on what the increments and are do you, stated. Do you think that's the auction houses trying to placate the sellers? Uh, uh, sort of no. caving in on that? Uh, no, they're, they're, they're trying to hold the bidder in, trying to keep the bidder. But, you know, as you get more and more online, and online bidding is a function of, you know what the increments are, you gotta stick to those increments. I mean, when I did a lot of those sales, and you know, the, the, if you will, the lower end, I mean, it was crucial that you stayed to the limits. You know, you got to 50,000, the next bid is 55. You know, it's, it's not 51. Because the phone bidder, or the online bidder now, is used to what those increments are, and plays by those increments. So I, I, I think that, I think that they're making a mistake. I really do. I mean, I also have a, a pet peeve about all this, which is, this is going to fascinate you. It's got nothing to do with it. Athena. Is that I never understood why you had to have these silly run-ups of an object. If someone wants to sell an object for a million dollars, so why not say the, the, the reserve is a million dollars? Why well, have to say, I have 850, I have 875, I have 900. You don't have jack shit. Yeah. I have 925, 950, 975. Yeah. You're looking desperately for someone to say they got a million. I think that's misleading to people on the phone. I really do. And I never liked it. And I voiced my opinion, which as you can imagine, fell on deaf ears, but I really think it's wrong. I think you could speed up the auctions dramatically and you'd have a, you'd have a, anyone, a million dollars? No, well, it passed, lot number two. You know, and afterwards, people come in and bid, always, in the aftermarket, so they bid 950. But I think the secret to it is to hustle it along and start where the number is. Who, who are you kidding in the end of the day? 
Well, that seems to be coming in in a little places around, you know, Heritage does this a little, I noticed Artsy started do, yeah. doing this, where you can see the bids that are left before yeah. the auction. So yeah. you already know if there's yeah. um, action, as it were, were yeah. to begin with, and it and it makes a lot of the, yeah. the warming the room up uh, unnecessary. Yeah, I mean, as an auctioneer, for example, in my day anyway, it was, it was all manual, and so I knew in every lot how many bids there were, the number who the person was bidding, not the person itself, but the paddle number. And, and, and you had to figure out very quickly what the right number to say was. Um, you couldn't just jump to the highest bid, because that's not fair to the person that left the bid. You have to, you know, you have to be quick. But in the end of the day, I would have been much better to say, I've got a bid of 50 grand. Anyone want to top it? No? Sold. You see, what the hell's wrong with that? I don't know. I guess I, I obviously I disagree with my colleagues on that one. Well, especially when you have a lot of works to get through. I yeah. mean, in the in those lower price sales, yeah. there's there's merchandise to move yeah. in, in a finite amount of time. I mean, I used to do 220 lots in four hours. That's a lot. That's a lot a minute. That's very hard to do, by the way. Nowadays, they bring in uh, they bring in reserves on that thing. I used to have to struggle away on this thing. I'd be exhausted, but I'd get hauled off the podium at two o'clock, about to cry. Now I notice they have two or three auctioneers to do it because you've got to keep the speed up. But I agree with you. It's so much easier. It'd be so much more simple. Do you, do you think that you can still have that kind of improvisation you talked about er, er, earlier with this um, you know, variety of different ways of bids coming at you? you know, mm -hmm. You've got things coming over the, the internet. Sure. You've got things on the phone. Why not? People start bidding at a million dollars. People are bidding 100 grand, whatever it is. You've got people on the phone, people in the room. You've got the internet. You know, and and you've got the book. Don't forget the book. The book's got the bids that are left, as they call it, with the auctioneer. Only that auctioneer knows and the person that put the bid in. No, no one else knows. And in theory, only the auctioneer and the person that puts the numbers in and the most crucial person is the client relationship person to know what the reserve is of that object. That's a big, big important difference that the auctioneer knows that and knows where to start for that reason. And does it, does it feel like that game you know, of adjusting reserves, which mm. we've had at crucial points, some evening sales where you know, an auction at the other house uh, has gone poorly and you can see uh, uh, everything's been recalibrated and the next night it'll go very well because there's information, everyone can work their clients and say, you know, this is what you have to be realistic uh, uh, about. And, yeah, but oh. I agree with you, that happens, but then the buyers have to get that feeling. So the way you do that is you have a big meeting and you try and get the reserves down. And that's what everybody does. Even if you've got a, a successful painter, they always tell you, get the reserve down. Uh, constant pressure to do that. All right. So now you've had, Christie's had a bad sale and now you're facing the music, right? You got all the reserves down. You go out there, it's very important that the auctioneer is able to sell a bunch of things early, way below what the estimate is. Now the message is out that the reserves are down. You can't tell people, in theory, you're not supposed to anyway, what the reserve is in the first place. So you shouldn't be telling them what the change reserve is. Now I'm not telling you people don't do it, I suspect they probably do, but it's not kosher. So frankly, that's the secret. So you get up there and all of a sudden you got an estimate of three hundred to $400,000 first lot and you sell it for two hundred. people are going to perk up a little bit. They said, hmm, there's a game here. So do you think we're seeing, or 
for a while, we saw a, a greater calendar of sales, especially in contemporary yeah. art. And it almost seems like one of the, the sticking points in the art market is that we've got very few sales, especially mm -hmm. at the top end in these evening sa sales. Yeah. So it almost, that kind of information you're talking about yeah. and conveying that would give people uh, a little more sense of where the market is right. rather than the big buildup and then the frustration or letdown of discovering that uh, maybe the buyers aren't there this November right. uh, who were there in February or right. in May. Right, that's yeah, true. I, look, it's a dilemma every time you go to a sale. You actually, let me tell you something, you go to a sale, you don't really know what your client is going to do. You don't really know. You know what that person says to you at 4 o'clock in the afternoon, but you don't know what that person is feeling at 7.45. That person may have had a fight with her husband. They may have had, uh, they wanted to go to dinner. I mean, you really don't know. I mean, I once bid for a guy who had to go to the loo to bid. He was out for dinner with his wife and another couple, and he didn't want the other couple to know how high he was prepared to go. I mean, he could have bagged it just as easily as not. I mean, I don't, you know, or someone wins something early, and now it's off the painting that everyone thought he was going to, she was going to buy. Yeah. You don't know. It's a, it's a mystery. That auctioneer, that's why I feel sorry for all auctioneers. They don't know what's going to happen. And let me tell you something. That's a very, very lonely feeling when you get up there, and you don't really know. You hope, but you I, don't know. I have to say, those evenings that don't go well. Aren't they awful? It is very hard not to have a great deal of sympathy for oh. the person who's got to mm. tough it out for another yeah. hour, you know, calling out every last uh, yeah. bid, hoping to get something yeah. going. Oh, I've been through so many of those. And let me tell you, when you do charity auctions, you really get the feeling of loneliness because there you really don't know. No one needs what you're selling, okay? No one. So the, the appalling moment in when you can't get anyone to buy anything, and you're up there and you're slugging it out, now they're all hitting the juice and having fun and talking. It is brutal. I watched these guys uh, who, are, who did the fine, I never did an evening sale except for Latin American art and American painting. But the compressions and modern sales, an old master sale. And I watched them suffer, oh my God. I always stayed on the phone, even if my client had hung up a long time ago. I stay on the phone and I held the phone just to at least give him a sense of support that I'm still in the game because it's a lonely, lonely world up there. And it's not your fault. It's got nothing to do with you. But it, but it can backfire. Well, they're a little bit like actors, you know, in the sense that they're on the stage when they're up there. Uh, the difference is if you're performing William Shakespeare, you've got some awfully good material. If you're trying to sell the 19th Andy Warhol, of a dollar sign, it's a little bit more complicated, and you, yet you're up there all alone. And you just put your alone, head down, go okay. through the motions, and, get, and just get it done. Yeah. Yeah, that's the secret. If it's not going well, go fast. Um, because if, if there's bidding, you'll pick it up. I mean, you're trained to see the bidding. You're trained to watch body language. I mean, you train yourself to watch body language. You know. But if it's going really badly, get it through. Get to the next one. Because it's, it's to the benefit of the overall sale that you keep it moving and keep it at the same kind of pace. So don't linger around and feel badly and surely don't take it personally. Take it personally, look, you're, you're looking in the eyes like a, you know, a deer in the headlight kind of look. That's a terrible look for an auctioneer. You gotta, every lot you gotta feel like, you know, this is gonna be it. You gotta stand tall and you gotta, you gotta spit it out and you gotta be strong. That's the way you do it. 
because it's a disservice to the next client, the next seller. Yeah. What about the reverse? What about when you have one of these sales that just runs away yeah. and uh, everything's selling? Fabulous. Fabulous feeling. You get off there and everyone thinks that, they're, that they did such a good job for the house and you, you're just for the auctioneer. Well done, well done, well done. <laughs> and, you know, it's failure has what? One owner and <laughs> exactly. success has 400,000. Yeah, I think when you have a sale, I've had a few sales where it was called a white glove sale where you yep. sell everything. It's very rare that happens. And boy, I tell you, you step down, you've had a white glove sale. You feel like you are maybe the best auctioneer in the world. You're yeah. not, but you feel it. Thank you for listening to the Artelligence Podcast. Visit us at artmarketmonitor.com. 